to receive the word that you have for us today. Show us our sin and show us our great, great Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Almost four years ago now, uh, there was a judge that sentenced Larry Nasser to prison. It was uh, just before she gave the sentence, uh, Judge Aquilina gave this scathing, devastating, impassioned, almost angry speech before she announced the years that this man would spend in prison for being a, a serial, serial abuser of young, vulnerable women. It was a speech that made clear that there was absolutely zero, uh, ex zero excuses that could be offered for his offenses. And she hinted at the fact that she couldn't legally punish him as much as she thought he actually deserved. The sentence was meant to punish him, although it would never come to the, to the full amount of justice that he actually deserved. But it was also intended, the sentence, as a deterrent for others. Others maybe perhaps already involved in this sort of heinous activity or, or somebody that might be flirting with the idea to, to provide a warning to think again, to consider their actions. And as we read our text this morning, I think this is how we should think about Matthew 23. It's actually a sentencing speech that a judge is giving. And Jesus is delivering it to the Jewish religious leaders for their crimes. Now, there's seven woes. We'll hear that word woe in this passage. And each time we hear the word woe, we should think guilty. Judgment is coming. Woe. Guilty. Judgment is coming. And Jesus specifies seven woes. Seven uh, counts of wrongdoing which will not go unpunished. And he makes this denunciation public. He hasn't uh, cordoned off the religious leaders. He's gathered the crowds and he makes this denunciation public to warn others. This public sentencing that he's giving is, is meant to be a warning to those who maybe would consider embracing the same superficial, self-exalting, self-indulgent religion of the Pharisees. But it's also a warning that keeps people from coming under the influence of, of such people today in the church. So we would do well to listen. So this judge, before, uh, before addressing the defendants, the judge addresses the courtroom, the public, in verses 1 through 12. Look at it with me. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the places of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace, and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. 
And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Now you notice Jesus acknowledges the right of the Pharisees and the Sadducees to teach. They they sit on Moses' feet. They have this position of authority. But he tells the crowds to follow their biblical instruction while ignoring their lives. Because although they should, they do not practice what they preach. Right? And he goes further in verse 4. It seems that they've added a list of ways, not, not found in Scripture, uh, of ways that people can offend God and sin against God. Friends, the Scriptures alone bind our conscience. We are free from rules which are either contrary to God's Word or not contained in God's Word. I think we confessed this last week right here in the liberty of conscience. And and Jesus is talking about the liberty of conscience which His people are to have, but which the Pharisees have robbed from His people. Brothers and sisters, if things are not contained in the Word of God, we are free in relation to them. No matter how wise they might seem, no matter how um, destructive they might seem to the desires of the flesh, if it's not in the Word of God, we are free. So, not only do these men like to control others, but they like to be recognized by others. Jesus talks about their, their flashy phylacteries. Phylacteries were these cords that they would tie around their left arm that would contain a box that contained Scripture, and they would also wrap it around their head. And they would perhaps wear these for an extended period of time beyond the hour of prayer. And they love to be acknowledged at public events. They wanted to be recognized. In addition to control and recognition, they loved titles. They wanted their PhDs in theology to be recognized. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. There is one you should emphasize. The Father in heaven. Oh, and oh yeah, his Christ, the Messiah. And for those listening, they should have recognized that's the speaker, Jesus. Right? They love control, recognition, and titles. And in contrast, in verse 11, Jesus tells the crowd that true greatness, it's not these Pharisees, it's not these religious leaders, true greatness is marked by humility, servanthood, not status-seeking, is what marks the people of God. Servanthood, not self-exaltation, grabbing for a place, is what characterizes Christ's people. Brothers and sisters, look for leaders in your midst here at Renovation Church who exemplify that. Humility, servanthood, not self-exaltation. Not control, not recognition, not titles. And brothers and sisters, let us be a people who humble ourselves to serve one another in the midst of the many needs that come throughout life. Not make much of ourselves. So having addressed the the courtroom, having addressed the crowds, Jesus launches into the 
into the sentencing speech. And he brings up the first two charges in verses 13 through 15. Look at it with me. He says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. You are guilty. Woe. You are guilty. And judgment is coming. Why? For the harm you've brought to others. You see, they were barricading, literally barricading heaven's doors by their teaching. Because what these men promoted was self-righteousness. Salvation by one's commitment to keep the law. And in so doing, they were shipwrecking people left and right. It's a standard to which they would never attain. It's a standard to which, friends, you will never attain. You know, you know those signs at the amusement parks must be this tall to enter this ride. You know those, right? Well, essentially the scribes and the Pharisees were putting those signs up all over, but the signs are must be 15 feet tall to enter in. No one can possibly ever break the doors of the, the doorway of heaven. No one can come close. Friend, you cannot come close to personally, perpetually, perfectly keeping God's law. Self-righteousness is a delusion. Jesus is condemning these leaders, not for their enthusiasm. They're a missional people. They're on mission, right? They went over sea and land to to make converts. And they're making disciples. Their churches are growing, Jesus seems to be saying. People are following them. The problem is they are reproducing flawed prototypes. They're discipling them in an idolatrous trust in self, in their own goodness, in their own morality. Friends, don't be fooled into looking to yourself for your salvation. When you look at yourself, you will find, and you should find, no true reason for hope. As the great song declares, not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demand. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. It's not going to do it. You're still left wanting. You're still left short. Thou must go to Babylon. Looking to ourselves for our salvation will only lead us, as Jesus calls in verse 15, to be a child of hell. Our hope should be in looking to Jesus alone. The, the third count, the third charge for which they're being judged is listed in verses 16 through 22. Look at it with me. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. 
And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. You are guilty and judgment is coming. Whoa, why? Because you twist the truth when it serves your purposes. Right? The, the Pharisees were known for using a complex set of vows and oaths. Um, something to verify the truth. Much like we would uh, just say in, in jest or in passing, I swear on my grandmother's grave. Right? Or, um, uh, what's the one? Uh, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Right? We're, it's, a spell, it's a vow, it's an oath. You're telling the truth, I swear. Right? Only far more serious here. And they knew that to involve God in such an oath or such a vow, that was serious. So they avoided involving God at all costs. If they wanted some, some wiggle room in their promise, they would swear by something lesser. The temple is God's house, so you can't swear by that because that, that involves God. No, just swear by the gold in the temple. You see... They refuse to recognize that all of life is lived before God. The phrase people sometimes use in the church today to describe this is the phrase coram Deo. Maybe you've heard it. R.C. Sproul explains it this way. To live coram Deo is to live one's entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, to the glory of God. To live in the presence of God is to understand that whatever we are doing and wherever we are doing it, we are acting under the gaze of God. I think there are two truths that from this, this passage, this count, this judgment that, that we're to embrace here. First of all, friends, no action in your life is private. You might think it is, but no Part of your life is hidden. Our life is open and bare before God. Don't fool yourself into thinking that you can reserve a part of your life and hide it from God. And secondly, God demands complete truthfulness and integrity. Our words should be our bond. Because our words are to mirror our Heavenly Father who is completely faithful and true in all that He says. Right? If we're going to say, we're going to pray for someone, hey, I'll pray for you. Pray for them. If we say, we're going to help somebody, then, then do away with all the selfish circumstances that, that would prevent you from honoring your word. God demands complete truthfulness and integrity. The fourth count, the fourth charge for which judgment is coming is found in verses 23 and 24. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind-eyed, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe. You are guilty 
and judgment is coming. Why? Because you're obscuring what really matters. The Old Testament law called for the people of God to, to give a tithe, a tenth of their harvest. That was most people's living then. A tenth of their income. And, and this religious group, the Pharisees, were so occupied with apportioning the perfect amount of even their smallest herbs that they missed the single mom from church sitting out to the curb in front of their house wondering how they're going to care for their kids, feed their kids. Oh, no, got to got to divide up the dill and the tenth here. God calls us to be faithful stewards. There's no question. It's clear in Scripture. All of us who name the, claim the name of Christ, we should regularly, proportionately, cheerfully give of what God has given to us of our finances. So the Pharisees weren't wrong in what they did. They were wrong in what they failed to do. They were wrong in what they left undone. So often we like to focus on our areas of obedience in our lives. But sometimes we we give little attention to areas where we lack faithfulness. And I wonder, are are we neglecting significant issues? Justice and mercy to those that are burdened around us. Loving our neighbor as ourselves while we busy ourselves with religious minutia. We might have faithfully, we may have been faithful tither for years. When was the last time we cared for somebody that was just hurting, depressed, lonely, anxious in our midst? Justice, mercy, faithfulness. May we be a people who do not obscure significant matters. The fifth and sixth judgments, the fifth and sixth counts of the judgment are found in verses 25 through 28. Look at it with me. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee! First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe, you are guilty, and judgment is coming. Why? Because you only care about your perception by others, not your purity before God. In both examples, Jesus, in these verses, Jesus points to their concern over outward appearances. He talks about a really, uh, a really appealing set of dishes, but inside it's so dirty and vile, it's never anything you would drink from or eat off of. Never. He also compares them to a graveyard with well-manicured lawns and beautiful headstones, wreaths placed beautifully right there to decorate them, all the while obscuring what is happening below the surface. Your faith is crushed. 
They presented themselves as godly people by certain acts, but they were controlled by greed and by self-indulgence. They didn't truly care about anybody other than themselves. They didn't care about God. They wanted to look good. They wanted to receive praise. They were all about their pleasure and comfort. I think perhaps one of the church's weaknesses could be the fact that often we like to gather together with others and pretend like we've got it all figured out. We've got our life kind of all buttoned up, cleaned up, managed. Oh yeah, marriages are great. Kids are perfect. You know, thoughts are pure. Yep. My life is upright. Anxiety? No anxiety here. Doubts when I read God's Word? Of course not. No, I'm faithful. Right? You've got those beautiful headstones going on. You're a beautiful cup. But it's rancid inside. The issue isn't brothers and sisters, that you struggle. Okay, hear that. The issue isn't that you struggle. It's that you pretend you don't. And I hope we can hear Jesus' words here and finally just take down the mask about wanting to present ourselves before others and and care more about our purity before the Lord. Stop presenting ourselves as moral examples and maybe then we can begin to carry one another's burdens. Stop embracing a superficial, self-exalted Christianity. Final indictment is found in verses 29 through 36. Look at it with me. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some of whom you will fill flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Woe, you are guilty. Judgment is coming. Why? Because you are rejecting God's words because of God's messengers. They idolized their religious history. These people were building monuments and statues to great Old Testament figures. David and the prophets. Many of whom had been rejected and and put to death. But despite this, this virtue signaling that they had going on, What were they currently doing? At that very moment, they were rejecting the Word of God in flesh. 
Remember, John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. They were presently rejecting the Word of God, the Word incarnate that the Father had sent. They were continuing on in the same mold of their fathers, from, from beginning to end, from Abel to Zechariah, from Genesis to the end of the Old Testament, did this. Judgment was assured because they had rejected God's Word through God's messenger. Friend, the message here is, today, if you hear the voice of the Lord, do not harden your heart. Here's the deal. You you might hold um, Calvin and Spurgeon and Sproul and Billy Graham and, and maybe a pastor from when you were growing up in high regards. You might have their books on their shelves. You might... You might have some of their audio files on your computer, but the question is not do you hold them in high regard, but what are you doing with the Word of God today? The command is hear the Word, receive the Word, respond to the Word in faith. Don't rely on some idealized path. You must heed God's call today and put all your hope in God's disclosure of Himself in Christ Jesus. Don't reject Him. The, the Pharisees were guilty, as we've just seen in these seven counts, of embracing a superficial, self-exalting, self-indulgent religion. And so the judge, Jesus, closes His sentencing speech in verses 37 through 39. Look at it with me. O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What I want us to notice is that while Jesus has just condemned them, he's banged the gavel guilty. Jesus laments their coming judgment. He weeps. Some people hear Christians talk about hell or God's judgment, and they think it just gives us some sort of jollies or something. Like, I think that's the perception out there. But, but Jesus' words here in 37 through 39, demonstrate that God's judgment isn't some um, sick, vindictive glee in the punishment of certain people. Quite the opposite, in fact. He wanted to protect them, like a mother hen. Right? Mother hen gets all the chicks under her, around her, covers them, and, and takes whatever's coming at them. They could have found safety in Jesus but they weren't willing. You see, friends, we've heard these judgments and, and perhaps you've felt conviction. But know this. God is patient. Not desiring for people to rush to their own destruction. And friend, I would urge you to seize upon God's patience today if you've been relying upon yourself and your own morality on a superficial, self-exalting, self-indulgent religion. We can receive His shelter and care in the coming storm, in the judgment, by looking to Jesus in faith and hiding in Him 
as a chick would with her mother. We, like these Pharisees, have too often embraced a superficial religion, a self-exalting religion, a self-indulgent religion. Our sins have piled up. But we can hide ourselves in Christ and His righteousness and find safety. He underwent, He already underwent the storm of God's punishment when He hung on the cross as a substitute for those who would trust in Him. You see, I think what Matthew 23 is telling us is that we must find refuge in Jesus or we'll face ruin at the judgment. I want us to note that Jesus promised that the Jews, Jerusalem, that their house would be desolate. And in 70 AD, the Romans wiped out their house, the temple. In 70 AD, the temple to which people looked and went for the forgiveness of their sins. The, the, the place to which they, they hoped for life, it was wiped out. And if Jesus' promise of judgment and his words are true then, we should not be slack about dabbling about with a superficial, self-indulgent, self-exalting religion. Just as certainly as judgment came upon Jerusalem and upon the judgment, uh, the, the, the temple in Jesus' day, we can be certain of our own judgment. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says this, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. But Jesus promised that these people would see him again and they would recognize him as, as God's chosen one, as God's appointed Messiah. In verse 39, the last verse there, Jesus promises, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's what the next verse in Hebrews tells us. Hebrews 9.28 says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Friend, brother, and sister, no matter who you are, no matter what your life is like, every one of us, every one of you, will recognize one day Every one of us will acknowledge Christ as God's appointed Savior. And every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I pray that it would be with joy in resting in Him, trusting in Him, hiding ourselves in Him, and not in grief for rejecting Him. We must find refuge in Jesus, or you will face ruin and judgment. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And we confess that so often our lives and even our professed faith is all about us. How we appear. What advantage it can give us in this life. 
what it could do for us. See, so many times we're looking to ourselves, our morality, our goodness, our devotion, our worship. But we're not looking to our Savior Christ Jesus. We confess that we are consumed with ourselves. Father, we just pray now that you would convict our hearts. You would show us our failures. But that you would show us our merciful Savior Christ Jesus. The one who longed to gather us to himself. Protect us. Save us. To give us his righteousness that we cannot work for. Father, I pray that you would give us strength to trust in him alone. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to partake of communion, and as we do, I think it's appropriate because this passage was all about reliance on self. Self-righteousness, self-exaltation. And as we come to the table, and as we receive the bread and the cup, we're reminded that self has nothing to do with it. That we rely totally and wholly on a righteousness foreign to us, alien to us, outside of ourselves. That it's in Christ Jesus alone. So despite our failures, our rebellion, our sin this week, we might not feel worthy, we might not feel loved. We come to this table and we receive we receive a gift, a reminder that, nope, it's not about you. It's not about what happened this week. It's what I did in my son. Receive him by faith. So, this table isn't for the perfect. It's not for those who have their lives all cleaned up, ship-shape. This table is for sinners who know their need for a Savior and know that Savior is Christ Jesus alone. If that's you, if you've been baptized into the church, I invite you to come. If you've not yet trusted in Christ, I would just encourage you to remain in your seat. Consider the claims of Jesus on your life. We'd love to talk with you afterwards. If you've trusted in Christ, we welcome you to come and receive strength promised to us, a great reminder that we are His because of Christ. That's servers to come. In a moment, I'm going to invite you to come down the center aisle, take this cup and the bread, and then when we've all been served and everyone's back at their seats, we'll partake together. Would you come?
letter to the Corinthian church tells us this, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. Can we pray for this together? the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me therefore as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes would you pray with me father we thank you for your plan We thank you for sending Christ Jesus for us to save us from our works. We are grateful that we are justified, that we are saved by faith in him apart from our works. And we praise you, Spirit, for applying his work to our lives that we might be united to him. We praise you, Father, Son, and Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.